so what they did with a lot of that money is they ended up going and buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and typical high-quality fixed-income assets, which is totally fine, except for the fact that because of the Fed's rate hiking cycle in 2022 and that's gone on to 2023, the value of those treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities that were bought in 2020 and 2021 have absolutely it's been crushed. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, we're recording a day early to discuss some of the impact that the markets have seen since Friday's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank to get our take on it as soon as possible. So I know we're going to go deep on this, but how are the markets doing today, Luke? The markets are responding very favorably today. Um, uh, outside of the bank stock, regional bank stocks are getting crushed today. But outside of them, um, stocks are, for the most part, rallying and rallying strong, especially in the growth and tech sectors, because um, investors are responding favorably to uh, the news that the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank are going to get bailed out. Um, not the shareholders, not the debt holders, but the depositors are going to get bailed out. And the market believes that this is the beginning of the long overdue and highly anticipated Fed pivot. And, and I actually agree with that. So we'll talk more about that and all the details around what happened, why it's important, why it could be the start of the Fed pivot and, and what it means for stocks over the next you know hour. But um, it, it's very important stuff. So for anybody that's invested in the markets today, I think this is a podcast that you need to listen to. Well, great. I'm looking forward to diving into all things SBB in a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, uh, today, again, we're going to be talking about Silicon Valley Bank, what happened, why it happened, should we be worried, and ultimately, will this affect your bull thesis for 2023? So first, can you give us a little top view summary of what's being told about what's happened with SVB and your interpretation of the events? Sure, Aaron, sure. So... What happened with Silicon Valley Bank is is a classic bank run. But banks don't go under because of bank runs. They go under because they did something wrong that caused the bank run, which then allowed them to not have enough capital to support a bank run. So Silicon Valley Bank, where did they go wrong? They went wrong in 2020 and 2021. There were two things that happened at Silicon Valley Bank that are very unique to them. And the reason that they happened is because of Silicon Valley Bank's very niche and exclusive focus on the tech sector and specifically the startup tech sector. As its name would imply, Silicon Valley Bank, it is the bank of Silicon Valley. It is the bank of venture capital. It is the bank of early stage tech startups. So about half of all U.S. tech startups are banked with Silicon Valley Bank. All the VCs have money there. Some big tech firms like Roku, Roku had $500 million in cash over there. So they are the bank of tech. Tech boomed in 2020 and 2021. Absolutely massive, unprecedented boom. As a result of that boom, VCs are writing huge checks. Startups were getting funding. There was stimulus. Tons of money was being deposited into Silicon Valley bank accounts in 2020 and 2021. The bank saw its deposits absolutely surge in those 24 months, more so than any other bank in the United States, regional or major. 
This was the fastest growing bank in terms of deposit volume in 2020 and 2021. As a result of that, the company had a lot of money that it had to put to work. They got all these deposits. They got to make money from money. They had to put that money to work. One of the options, the most common option to put money to work for your bank is to lend that money back out to customers. But tech companies didn't need loans in 2020 or 2021 because the government was providing very low interest rate loans and... VCs were writing check after check after check and public markets were just equity raises, equity raises, equity raises. So all these companies were able to finance themselves without needing to tap SVB for a loan. So there was no demand for SVB to take customer deposits and turn them into loans. So they had to figure out a different thing to do with that cash. They still had to make money. So what they did with a lot of that money is they ended up going and buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and typical high-quality fixed-income assets, which is totally fine, except for the fact that because of the Fed's rate-hiking cycle in 2022 and that's gone on to 2023, the value of those treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities that were bought in 2020 and 2021 have absolutely it's been crushed. Silicon Valley's bond portfolios have been absolutely crushed over the past two years. That's not unique to them. Every major bank out there, every regional bank out there went and bought a bunch of bonds in 2020 and 2021 because deposits everywhere soared. Yes, they soared especially so in the tech sector for Silicon Valley Bank, but get all the stimulus checks, people were saving money, they were still earning money, deposits everywhere soared in 2020 and 2021. So every bank went and bought a lot of fixed income securities in 2020 and 2021. And those fixed income security portfolios are now significantly underwater here in 2023. The real problem with Silicon Valley Bank is that it had to cash out that bond portfolio. Because if you buy all these bonds, if you're a bank and you buy all these bonds in 2020 and 2021, if you just get to hold those bonds in maturity, you buy a bunch of 10-year treasury yields and you hold them for 10 years in 2030, 2031, they just run off the balance sheet. Nothing happens. You don't record a massive loss on your, um, on your P&L. Your customer deposits don't get hit. They just simply run off the balance sheet. So that's why what banks do is they want to hold these things for a the long term. Two years, hold them for two years. Ten years, hold them for ten years. They want to hold them to maturity. But of course, that's impossible if your deposits start declining and you're feeling a cash crunch, a liquidity crunch, and you need to sell those bond portfolios to raise cash to fund the deposits, to fund the, the withdrawals. That's what happened in Silicon Valley Bank. The VC market has completely dried up over the past 12 months. As a result of that, there has been very little money coming in the door for Silicon Valley Bank. Startups are not raising money. VCs are not raising money. There are, there's very little money coming in the door for these startups. But these startups still have to fund their businesses, fund their operations, fund their day-to-day. They have payroll. They have all these things. So cash burn is still high. There's still money going out the door. Obviously, that's unsustainable. What Silicon Valley Bank was seeing was deposits – go lower and lower and lower and withdrawals continue to go out and out and out. So they were facing a liquidity crunch that forced them to sell their bond portfolio to raise the necessary capital to fund some of these withdrawals. And then they tried to fill that gap. It was, it was a multi-billion dollar loss that bond portfolio with an equity raise, but the market was like, no one wanted to touch that. No one wanted to buy Silicon Valley bank equity. And so they failed to raise that money. And that's when the FDIC came over and took over and did the whole mess that we have today was uh, that's, that's where we are today, basically. So 
that's what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. And critically, the reason I do not believe this is a contagion that will spread everywhere else is because Silicon Valley Bank's explosion was unique to its focus on the high growth tech sector, the early stage tech sector. Other banks, one, did not see deposits soar in the way Silicon Valley Bank did in 2020 and 2021, and therefore did not have to buy such large bond portfolios relative to their market caps as Silicon Valley Bank did. So they didn't have these huge bond portfolios that are now sitting on, on big losses. The unrealized loss in Silicon Valley Bank's portfolio as a percent of market cap, as a percent of assets, dwarfs everybody else's out there. So that's the first reason I think the Silicon Valley Bank thing is isolated, is idiosyncratic and not systemic. The second thing is the deposit, the withdrawals, right? I don't think the economy is in a position outside of the startup tech sector where you're seeing withdrawal, 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 withdrawal without a lot of deposits. A lot of these other firms are seeing deposit growth still. SoFi, for example, is seeing fabulous deposit growth. A lot of these other banks are still seeing positive deposit growth. Deposits at Silicon Valley Bank have been dwindling for a long time, and um, they were falling more rapidly than everywhere else. So uh, that is a problem, again, unique to, to Silicon Valley Bank. So because the company had a bigger-than-normal surge in deposits – and now a bigger than normal drop in deposits, a bigger than normal surge in withdrawals, the risks that collapsed or the factors that collapsed Silicon Valley Bank feel mostly unique to Silicon Valley Bank or crypto banks like Silvergate and Signature Bank, which is another bank that was shut down over the weekend. Um, I was about to so ask, I don't think is, what, ahead, yeah. is what happened with Signature Bank the same thing that happened with Silicon Bank? Uh, yeah, so Signature Bank, I mean, it's, it's crypto-focused, and, and the details there are a little bit more murky. It was kind of like um, over the weekend, they just the federal government came in and shut it down and, and, and seized the assets. So um, the, it's a little bit murky as to what happened there, but one can presume that it's pretty much the exact same situation. And, and the, the fear is, the fear, of course, is that if the Fed keeps hiking rates, because the reason this all broke is, is these bond portfolios are sitting on massive losses because of the Fed's rate hike cycles, Right. All these banks were forced to buy a bunch of bonds in 2020 with interest rates at 0%. And now interest rates are at 45 going on to 5%. So these bond portfolios that all these banks uh, invested heavily in 2020, 2020 and 2021 are now significantly underwater. If the Fed keeps hiking rates, then those bond portfolios are going to continue to come under significant amounts of pressure. They're going to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, bigger unrealized losses. And then if you start getting withdrawals and bank runs, then all of a sudden what happened to Silicon Valley Bank can happen at all the other regionals, probably not the major banks. The major banks feel much better capitalized, but at the other regionals, First Republic, Bank of Hawaii, stuff like that, then what happens to Silicon Bank could happen at those banks too. So that's the big, big fear. That's, that's the big kahuna here. That's why stocks plunged last week because – I mean, the timing of this is horrible, dude. The Fed, Powell comes out. We, we all think that, okay, maybe the Fed is kind of done. Maybe they'll go 25. Inflation's coming off. Like things are trending in, in their favor. Maybe they'll stop playing offense so aggressively. Then Powell comes out on Tuesday, Wednesday, and basically says, 
we're going to play offense as aggressively as we ever. Fast break, fellas. Fast break, fast break, fast break. And the market repriced significantly to 50 basis points being the consensus in March. 80% odds, according to the futures market, last week of the Fed going 50 basis points in two weeks and in their March meeting. And that, I mean, that's huge. So everyone's got fearful about that. And stocks kind of got jittery about that. Then Silicon Valley Bank collapsed the next freaking day. So the market on Thursday and Friday was looking at a situation where we just heard the Fed chair sound as hawkish as we've, as we've ever heard him. And then a pretty major regional bank collapsed because the Fed's been super aggressive. Mm-hmm. So going into the weekend, everybody was afraid if Silicon Valley Bank was a warning shot. Mm-hmm. If the Fed doesn't heed that warning shot, what happened at Silicon Valley Bank is just the beginning. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's the first domino to fall. The analogy we've been using here in this podcast, Aaron, is the bull in the China shop. Mm-hmm. Fed's the bull. The economy's the China shop. We've said the bull's going to stay in the China shop until something breaks. And then if the bull leaves the China shop quietly after just one or two things break, everything's going to be fine. Well, that's where we were last week. Something finally broke. A China fell off the shelf and it shattered. That was Silicon Valley Bank. The Fed finally broke something. Is the bull now going to leave the China shop or keep stomping around? Because if something breaks, that means all the China is now close to the shelf. Mm -hmm. Right? So if this bull keeps stomping... Boom, 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 boom. It's going to be like dominoes and all the China is going to break. And it could, I mean, it's not going to be a repeat of 08. Banks are much better capitalizing that. But it will be a significant setback, a significant recession, financial contagion. It will not be pretty. So, and that's why, that's why the markets were worried last week. But, but let me finish it real quick. But the reason stocks are responding positively today and rallying is because it seems like the Fed did hear that warning mm. shot. And it seems like the bull is now making its way out of the China shop. So there, there were rumors, you know, on Saturday, people were talking about that probably JP Morgan comes in and buys Silicon Valley Bank or maybe, um, maybe Bank of America, um, maybe Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan were, were the two biggest. Um, and people were talking about, okay, maybe that's going to happen. So that, that was the consensus belief on Saturday is, is somebody may come in and buy um, the assets of Silicon Valley Bank and, and make the depositors whole. That's not what happened. Instead, what happened is the government came in on Sunday. The Fed, the Treasury, the White House, they came in on Sunday and said, we're backing the depositors. Mm-hmm. We, the U, we, we don't need J.P. Morgan. We don't need Goldman Sachs. We, the United States government, are going to fully bail out and backstop all the depositors in Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. That's huge. That, that is much more dovish than anybody expected for the government to come in and fully backstop all these. And with that move, it becomes almost... I mean, very counterintuitive and very counterproductive for the Fed in, in a week to go and hike rates again mm-hmm. or for the Fed to continue its rate hiking campaign very aggressively. Maybe they go 25 next week, but that's probably it. That if the government's coming in and bailing out banks and bailing or bailing out the depositors at banks, I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, you're taking one step forward and one step back. You're going nowhere. Like, no, we got to take a step forward each time on, on this 
on this battle. And so the market is now significantly shifted, significantly shifted to saying, one, the Fed heard the warning shot. And two, the pivot has started. The, the pivot has begun. Two-year Treasury yields, they've collapsed 100 basis points in three days. 100 basis points in three days. Every single time the two-year Treasury yield has had a move that sharp, that sharply negative, uh, you know, down more than 100 basis points in, in a three-day stretch, the Fed always, every single time within weeks, was cutting rates every single time. So the, the bond market is saying rate cuts are, are coming. You look at the, the CME Fed watch tool, the futures market based on Fed pricing. Like I said, last week after the Powell testimony, 80% chance of a 50 basis point hike in March, 20% chance of a 25 basis point hike. So the consensus was overwhelmingly they're going to go 50. Now there's an 80% chance they go 25 and a 20% chance they go zero. They don't hike. Mm -hmm. So we've gone from consensus 50 to consensus 25 with the potential of them actually not going at all. And then you look out to the May futures and pretty much everybody's saying they're going to be done by then. So you're seeing a mass 10-year treasury yields are coming off significantly. We were at 4.1. Last time I checked, we were at 3.5 on 10 years. So that's down about 60 basis points in three days. That's also a very, very large move in that market. So you're starting to see the markets reprice in a manner that's strongly suggestive of a Fed pivot having already begun. Um, and the Fed going either 25 next week or zero and then not going in May. That's that's sort of where what we're looking at today. And to bolster that, you know, today the New York Fed came out totally flying under the radar here on Monday. New York Fed came out with their consumer survey from February. Inflation expectations, one year ahead inflation expectations dropped from 5% to 4.2% in February. That's an 80 basis point drop. That's the biggest drop in the cycle. So amidst all this financial contagion stuff risk that's going on, inflation expectations are collapsing. Tomorrow, CPI throws a wrinkle in there. You know, is it going to be hot? Is it going to be cold? If it's cold and the PPI is soft on, on Wednesday as well, then the Fed's going to have the cover it needs to address the financial contagion risk, stop the fight against inflation. And, and I, think it's, I think it's boom time for stocks after that. Uh, a very kind of a, the historical analogy a lot of people are comparing this to right now or drawing parallels to right now, which I think does hold some water. It's not entirely... Um, you know, apples to apples here, but it's, it's close, is when long-term capital management, a big hedge fund failed in 1998. So long-term capital management was this big hedge fund that placed highly leveraged bets throughout the 90s and was very successful um, until they weren't successful because they were highly leveraged. And because they were highly leveraged when they weren't successful in 1998, things blew up rather quickly. Now, long-term capital management was a $5 billion hedge fund that had ties all over Wall Street. And had they failed, it would have been a very bad thing across all banks. A lot of banks were invested in them. They had positions related to long-term capital management positions. So long-term capital management's failure would have potentially kick-started a systemic um, fallout in the, uh, in the financial sector. Long-term capital management started to have troubles early September 98. By September 23rd, 1998, the government rescued long-term capital management. Six days later, September 29th, 1998, the Fed cut interest rates after having not done anything with interest rates for over a year. So what I'm, what I'm saying here is that long-term capital management fails 
a week later, the Fed cuts rates. Mm. And then how did stock prices react? Well, stocks had been struggling throughout 1998 because the economy was slowing. The Fed wasn't helping. There were financial contagion risks building. Then the long-term capital management thing happened and stocks took a big leg lower in September. Then the Fed cut rates and boom, we all know what happened in 1999 and into 2000, one of the biggest stock market booms ever. History repeating? Maybe. Maybe. I, I don't know if we're going to head into a massive, massive boom, but I do think two things. One, the precedent is such when the Fed comes in and starts or when the government comes in and starts rescuing banks, the Fed, the Fed's done. The Fed's done with their rate hikes. Two, when the Fed stops its rate hikes, when the Fed pauses, that normally starts big stock market rallies. So net net. I think we're working through the initial aftershocks of financial contagion fear right now, but the developments over the past week actually make me more bullish than ever and strengthen my conviction in my call that stocks will have a very strong 2023 showing behind falling inflation, a dovish evolution of Fed, uh, Fed policy, restabilizing economic activity and resilient earnings growth. And I think what's happened over the past week actually makes those things look much more realistic, much more possible, much more likely here in 2023, because, and here's the big thing, the Silicon Valley bank crisis was bad enough to get the Fed's attention and prompt a pivot, Mm. but not bad enough to cause economic crisis. See, Lehman's collapse in 08 was big enough to do both. It was big enough to get the Fed's attention and big enough to crash the economy. Silicon Valley Bank is not that. Silicon Valley Bank is big enough to fire the warning shot, but not big enough for a head kill. Okay? That's that's where we are. And that's a very fortunate position that we were able to get a warning shot. We got shot in, in the foot, basically. Mm-hmm. So let's stop running. Right? Let's let's let, Let's now go for cover. That's that's kind of where we are. And it's a very fortunate position that we were able to have this warning shot before, you know, a potential big kahuna. But now we need the Fed to actually heed the warning shot and follow through with it. And it does seem like they will. But until they actually do, I expect markets to remain jittery. Gotcha. I, I do want to go back real quick and talk a little bit about uh, the governmental response that we're seeing. Uh, President Biden spoke today. He addressed everybody about what's going on, how they're handling it. And one of the things that kind of stood out was uh, you mentioned at the top of this call that there are going to be bailouts for the the people who have deposits in there. They're going to get be able to get their money. Um, but from what I've heard and what I've read, it seems that anybody who's invested in Silicon uh, Bank is not going to get those uh, that money back. That's gone. Um, it's also, I, I found it interesting that President Biden made it clear that this wasn't a, ba- a traditional bailout like in uh, 08, that the money's coming from somewhere else. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this governmental response as far as bailing out uh, customers of Silicon Bank and not investors? Yeah, so this, this, this is a depositor bailout. This is the depositors of the banks are getting bailed out, not the shareholders, not the debt holders, not the execs, not the management teams, not the people that, that kind of made the decisions that made it go kaboom. No, the people that are getting the bailouts that are happening right now are for the people who were not at fault. 
I mean, maybe you could say some of the venture capitalists at Silicon Valley Bank knew that Silicon Valley Bank was living on the edge. So they were kind of at fault. Maybe they were complicit a little bit. I don't know. But that's that's tough to say for all the startups there. That's tough to say for the customer signature bank. That's tough to say for for probably most of the VC firms that were at Silicon Valley Bank as well. Um, So this is a bailout for the people that were not at fault. And I, I think it's a smart and a good bailout. It's a bailout that does two things. One, and at the same time, which is important. One, it keeps those people safe. If I'm a startup, I raised $5 million over the past year. I I mean, I don't know what Silicon Valley Bank is doing. I just know they're the de facto bank for startups. So I'm banking with them, had a good experience. I have $4 million in the bank now. I'm making payroll, a lot of I do. Boom, Silicon Valley Bank collapses. I'm like, wait, what? I'm freaking out. I don't have my cash. Does it really seem fair that I should lose, you know, I'll get 250K back, that's FDIC insured. Should I, you know, I got 4 mil in there, that leaves me a $3.75 million gap. Is it really fair that I lose $3.75 million or, you know, only get 80% or 90% or 70% of that back? No, that's, that's, I, that's not fair. I'm just a startup trying to make a business that raised money and the bank lost it. The bank made bad decisions. So I think, you know, ethically and morally, it makes a lot of sense that you get a depositor bailout, but you don't bail out the people that made the bad decision. So one, you keep the people who were not at fault safe. You keep the regular Americans safe. You keep the, the startups safe. You keep the companies that need that cash to make payroll safe. And by extension, you keep all those jobs safe. Very good. But at the same time, you send a lesson. You know, if, if your bank is doing this, Bank of Hawaii, First Republic, if your banks are doing this, we're not going to bail you out. We're going to bail your customers out. We're going to keep your customers safe, but your risk-taking behavior, that's on you. You own it. You deserve to go down for that. And that's why you're seeing today the regional stocks, despite the government creating this emergency lending fund for everybody. Now, was another big thing they did on Sunday, right? They didn't just say, hey, we're going to bail out the depositors at uh, Silicon Valley and Signature. We're creating an emergency lending fund to help all these other banks fill their um uh, make their depositors whole in the case that they, they're not able to. So they basically extended an olive branch everywhere, right? But despite that, regional bank stocks are still getting crushed. Why? Because the olive branch goes to protecting the depositors, not protecting the shareholders. So shareholders are like, we need to get out of Dodge <laughs> ASAP. And and I, I think this is the right response. I think this is the right and smart response from the government. You're protecting the people that need to be protected, that should be protected, that weren't at risk, weren't at fault, while still punishing those that were at risk and were at fault because they didn't have any risk management controls um, at, at their bank. And Silicon Valley Bank was swimming without a life vest. That's pretty much what was going on there. So um, I, I, I like the government response to this. I think it's the right government response. Like I said, I think it has to have follow through with the Fed stopping its interest rate hike campaign. Because again, this what's happening right now is cracks are starting to form and we're filling those cracks. But we have to stop what was making the cracks, right? Mm -hmm. Or else we're just gonna be forever patching these cracks. And I mean, it's it's like if you have a leak at your house, right? And you just, you kind of, tape up one pipe, you didn't really fix where the the source leak was. You got to find the source leak to really stop the problem or else you're going to keep taping and taping and taping and taping and taping and taping and taping until boom, something's going to burst and the whole house is underwater. Not really, but you know, hyperbole there. 
that's that's where we are right now. The cracks are forming, and yes, the government's coming in and patching up the cracks to make sure it's not gonna gonna break yet. But unless we stop what's making the cracks, then you know we're, we're not gonna really fix the issue here. So again, I think the government response is great, but it needs to have follow through with fixing what is making the cracks, and that is the Federal Reserve's rate hiking campaign. I think twenty five basis points next week is about all the market can take. I think it has to be 25 and done. If they go 50 next week, which now there's a 0% chance of that, and I believe there's a 0% chance of that, um, then that would break the market. If they go 25 next week and then 25 the, the, in May, and then 25, that's going to end up breaking the market and the economy. They have to go 25 and done, I think, or just be done. I think that's those are the only two paths forward for the Fed at this point in time. And I don't see any reason why that would create stagflation. That's the other risk here. People are like, oh, they're going to stop hike, stop cutting hiking rates, so inflation is going to reaccelerate. No. Mm. I've, I, I've provided so much data to show everybody inflation is rolling over so fast. Mm. It's unbelievable. Every leading indicator of inflation is showing us that the major components of inflation are about to roll over. Housing inflation, that follows Zillow's uh, perceived rent index, right? So they track rents everywhere and month over month and how they're trending. That is that is collapsing, absolutely collapsing right now. Same with red fins. Those indicate that shelter inflation, part of the CPI, the, about 40% of CPI is going to roll over over the next six months. Energy CPI is going to collapse because oil prices are collapsing. Natural gas prices are collapsing. Gas prices at the pump are collapsing. Heating prices, heating the heating part of CPI is going to collapse. Transportation part of CPI is going to collapse. The food part of CPI is going to collapse. The UN's food index has declined for eight straight months. That leads food CPI by eight months. Over the past 40 years, it's led food CPI by eight months. That thing has been rolling over for eight months in a significant fashion. That means food CPI is about to roll over to the end of the year. It's going to collapse like nobody's business. So all of the major components of CPI, food, shelter, transportation, energy, everything is about to roll over. So all that's happening at the same time, inflation expectations are collapsing. Like we said, New York Fed, 5% to 4.2%, minus 80 bits in the same month. And you're getting financial contagion risk building. I mean, if the Fed doesn't pause, I don't know what they're looking at. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't know what I, – I, I don't get it. I, I would not understand. And in the event that does happen, in the event that the Fed continues to hike pretty aggressively for the next two to three months, that is a situation wherein my bullishness gets completely evaporated. And I'm like, you got to play absolute defense here for the next 12 months because they're going to walk us straight into a brick wall. But I don't think that. I've been team Fed the whole time. I've been team Powell the whole time. I think they're in the final act of what has been a brilliant rate hiking campaign. They have, they knew that they were the bull in the China shop and they knew they could keep pounding until something broke. They knew that. And that's why they did what they did. They kept going, you know, they kept us within these guardrails. Whenever the market got too cold, they would say, you know what? Inflation's not as bad as people feared. Maybe we can slow down. Then the market would heat up like crazy. And then they would say, you know what? Inflation's worse than we thought. We're going to have to go a little bit harder than we thought. Then the market would cool down. Then they would say the opposite market. They've kept us in this guardrails. They played a genius game. Until something broke. Mm -hmm. Now something is broken. Now I think they, they're going to fully acknowledge the fact we broke something, remove the guardrails, and let's just stop this campaign altogether. 
If they do that, I would say they've engineered a perfect nine innings of rate hiking to immaculate disinflation with a soft landing. They have an opportunity to do that, and I think they will do that. So I've been Team Powell. I've been Team Fed. I think they've been doing the right thing so far. I think they're going to finish with a final act that is going to cap off a perfect rate hiking campaign that's going to put us in a soft landing with inflation below 2% by the end of the year. That's that's my call. So in as I was catching up with all this this morning, I was, I'm reading some of the same things. A lot of people are saying that your predictions for the Fed is what's going to happen. Uh, but we are in, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, a blackout period between now and the next time yes. that they have their next meeting. So we're not going to be hearing a lot from the Fed between now and then. What other signals should we be looking for that uh, emphasize your, your thesis? Yeah, great. So let me actually, let me pull up the press release from the, so yes, you're right. It's the Fed blackout period. So the Fed can't speak about policy mm-hmm. and Fed members can't come out and do their press conferences and all that stuff and, until the Fed meeting. But when you bail out a bank, a Silicon Valley bank, uh, depositors, you can issue a press release and you can, and you can't put words in that press release, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So Fed did that. Okay. And if you read kind of what they said in that press release, actually verbatim what they said in that press release, and I'm going to pull up the – there's one paragraph I copy and pasted to my team. I was like, this this is the paragraph that that means everything, guys. This is this is it. Um, so in, in, in the press release, the, the Fed basically said that its board of governors, quote, is closely monitoring conditions across the financial system and is prepared to use its full – range of tools to support households and businesses and will take additional steps as appropriate. Yeah, they can't come out and say anything in press conferences right now, but that about says it all. Mm-hmm. We're going to take additional steps as appropriate. We're, we're going to make sure this is not a systemic contagion that, that collapses the economy. And if that means additional steps, if that means, you know, Stopping a rate hiking campaign—that's exactly what it means. So, I, I think that's that's that for me said it all. That press release, I think, is really what, what got this market rally going. Then the New York Fed expectations came in well below, and it kind of gave them more cover to hide under. We got the CPI tomorrow. If we get more cover there, it's going to continue to look good. So, what am I looking at over the next two weeks into that Fed meeting? One, got the CPI, PPI, and PC coming up. So, we got to make sure those are. Um, at least not ridiculously hot. Anything short of ridiculously hot, and I think the market can can rally and can work. But if it's ridiculously hot, we're going to have to talk about this. This conversation is going to sound a lot, lot different next week. <laughs> so we gotta we gotta follow those reports. Got to follow Treasury yields. The two years, the one you got to watch right now. I know everyone's focused on the ten year because that's the one that everybody always is focused on. But the ten year ebbs and flows with economic confidence as well. The two year just tracks the Fed. So follow that two years, see what that two years is doing. Again, we're down 100 basis points in that in three days. That's a ridiculous move lower. Does it stabilize here? Does it keep moving lower? Watch the, the futures market, the CME, Fed Watch tool. That, that's a very good site where you can kind of track, okay, what is the market expecting in terms of, of rate hikes, rate cuts, rate pauses in the next two months, next two to three months. So um, follow those things and, and see what's going. We're not going to get any resolution on a lot of those numbers and a lot of those trends until the Fed meeting itself. Because like you said, we have a blackout period. And what we're doing right now is we're just waiting for the Fed to see, is the bull going to fully enter the China shop or kind of keep its butt in and keep pounding its hind legs? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we, we have to wait for visibility on that to know which way the market's really going to go over the next, you know, two months. But 
I think that we're going to get some visibility there in um, in in two weeks. And that visibility is going to be positive visibility. And it's going to allow stocks to, to move higher. Again, I see a lot of parallels to the, the long-term capital management situation uh, in 1998. And that started a very large stock market boom. Now, the difference, of course, the difference, of course, is that CPI back then was below 2% and CPI now is at 6%. So huge inflation differences. But long-term capital management was $5 billion at its peak and um, Silicon Valley Bank was $40 billion at its peak. So much bigger financial contagion risk as well. Those may offset each other. I see a lot of parallels to, to 1998. So like you said earlier, we've seen two very different responses in the market from Friday to today. What does mm-hmm. the next month, the next six months, and the next year look like as a result of what we've seen over the weekend from Friday till today? Right. So I, I can give you my my best guess, my outlook here. And my best guess is the Fed goes 25 basis points next week. Well, I think CPI, PPI, PC uh, come in either softer than or in line with expectations. I don't think above consensus prints are, are all that likely based on the true inflation data that I'm reading. So I think we're going to get softer inflation prints over the next two weeks. I think the Fed's going to go 25 basis points in March and then signal that they're done. Signal that this may be the end of our rate hike campaign because financial contagion risks are building and inflation is is falling. So um, we need to be mindful that uh, of that and of those risks. So I think they're going to sound a lot more dovish uh, in their statement and their press conference there. I think the combination of these below consensus prints with a uh, somewhat more dovish Fed uh, that may be signaling the end of its rate hikes in two weeks well lead to market strength uh, here in March and April. And then I think from there, I think inflation continues to fall because the force is already in, in, in motion, right? The forces to bring inflation down are already in motion. Rates have already gotten to four and a half percent. There's a lag effect there, cumulative lag effect there, and it, it, it's, it's going to show up. So I think over the next six months beyond, you know, here in March, April, you know, into the end of the year, I think that, that period looks like rapidly falling inflation, restabilizing economic activity, and a Fed that keeps rates stuck where they are. I don't see them cutting rates, but I don't see them hiking rates. I see them staying on pause for a while to allow things to restabilize, but also keeping things from reheating. I think cuts would reheat things in an an unnecessary fashion. And I think that if rates do stay level and inflation still falls and economy restabilizes and the contagion uh, fears from SVB start to moderate knees as you know, everyone's waiting for more shoes to drop. If no more shoes drop and those fears ease, that combination, I think, leads to a pretty healthy, pretty strong, pretty vigorous stock market rally from April into the end of the year. I think earnings will also remain resilient and I think yields will come lower. So in that environment, a recovery environment, yields coming down, Fed's on pause, inflation's unwinding. That's an environment where growth and tech stocks lead. And that's why you've seen throughout 2023, Growth in tech has been leading. It's been leading today as this kind of narrative starts to become, I believe, it's become the consensus narrative. So I think that we get a pretty healthy stock market rally into the end of the year. A lot of volatility to the Fed decides, but big picture trajectory from March into December, then get a pretty healthy stock market rally. I think the leaders of that rally are going to be growth in tech stocks. I think I think um, defensive struggle. I think the Dow underperforms the NASDAQ. I think small caps outperform large caps. I think it'll be a very different than what, what 2022 was. Okay. Um, 
that covers all my questions I have. Is there anything else that you can think of that we, that our viewers should know about uh, what's happened over the weekend and what's going to happen for the rest of 2023? All right. Well, I, I mean, so I have my, my outlook and my thesis, but that's my outlook and my thesis and it could be wrong. And I think we have to, we have to prepare for that. We have to prepare for a worst case scenario here. Right. So uh, the path forward that I see base case most likely is what I just said, but we could veer off that path. And one of the, the bear case uh, divergences there would be the Fed does not acknowledge um, that to the extent the market wants, the financial contagion risks continue to hike uh, 25 in, in March and 25 in May and then 25 into the summer. And then all of a sudden you get more regional bank collapses and the majors have to come in and, and rescue the day. And that gets really messy and the consumer starts to weaken and then you get the labor market collapsing. And then we go into a pretty significant recession. So I would say there may be, you know, I'm just throwing out numbers here. Don't hold me to these, but let, let's call it a 75% chance that the base case I laid out comes true. Maybe there's a... 15% chance of what I just said happens. Um, the Fed doesn't acknowledge, continues to hike us into a recession, and we get stuck in a recession for 12 to 24 months. Uh, and then probably a 10% chance of the fact that the Fed does heed the warnings, um, does pause, and inflation reaccelerates, and they have to re-up their campaign against it in the back half of the year, and that causes stagflation, and, and we get a nasty um, several years in stock. So I would say, I would say there's maybe a 10% chance of that happening less than that, actually. So that these are the, the various pathways that, that I'm looking at. So, and go ahead. Yeah. So with those three pathways is, is there a way to prepare for all three when you're playing the markets or is it, you know, try to choose the one with the most likelihood and work with that? Yeah, I mean, there is no one strategy that's going to be optimized. I mean, these are very divergent possibilities, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we're either going to boom or we're going to bust. Like, it's very <laughs> divergent. And, 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 and the characteristics of each are very divergent. Like, in one of these pathways, right, inflation reaccelerates, yields rise again. In the other one, inflation completely unwinds and yields collapse. Obviously, the assets that are going to work in one are not going to work in the other and vice versa. So it's tough to find one strategy that's going to work in all of these scenarios. I think what you have to do is you have to stay flexible and stay nimble. Um, and also look at your time horizon, right? I mean, what is what is your time horizon? Are you investing for 12 months? Are you investing for three years? Are you investing for five years, 10 years? Uh, you know, you and I are both pretty young and um, we should be investing for, for the long term, for the long haul. We should have very long time horizons, multi-year, multi-decade time horizons even. Uh, in that scenario, you know, this is all nothing but a giant buying opportunity because stocks have an upward bias because the U.S. economy has an upward bias. And unless you think capital Capitalism is going to end or the U.S. economy is going to implode, neither will happen, by the way, uh, then this time is not different. And this is just like 2020, just like 08, just like 1999 and 2000, just like the early 1990s, just like Black Friday 1987, just like the early 1980s, just like 1975, 76. This is the exact same rodeo over and over and over and over again. So it's nothing more than a buying opportunity. So you want a dollar cost average into the long term uh, growth stocks that have a great opportunity to compound year after year after year after year will grow through this and thrive after this this crisis. So um, if you're long term, that's that's kind of the strategy. If you're short term, you got to stay flexible and you have to be aware that, you know, at any moment things could change dramatically and you need to 
pile into um, defensives or pile into growth or pile into tech or pile into the Dow or pile into banks. Um, I think there, there are different different stocks in these different situations. But I, I don't like to play the short-term game too much. I, I obviously like to play the long-term game. And so I think the best strategy here is to not panic, stay calm, dollar cost average to long-term growth stocks. And then if this base case scenario that I'm uh, laying forth does materialize, then you want to get really aggressive on on growth and tech stocks. If it doesn't, then maybe peel back some exposure and start buying some cyclicals, start buying some bonds, um, start hanging out in safety, buying some gold. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense too. But you know, uh, for the bulk of the portfolio, I I, I personally um, would stay invested in, in the U.S. economy, in innovation, and in growth, and in capitalism because those are. This is not the capitalism killer. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I didn't want to divert too much away from the conversation, but we have actually one fan question, which kind of relates to it. Uh, this comes from yes. Alexandra D8570. With the collapse of SVB, will this create any opportunities for SoFi? Yeah, actually, I was going to bring this up because it was something I was talking about with my team. Um, I think the regionals are, or at least the market thinks the regionals are done. Now, I'm not a bank guy. I'm not going through Bank of Hawaii and First Republic and their balance sheets. and see, that That's not my shtick. And even if I did do that, I wouldn't be able to come to any meaningful conclusions because I'm no expert at that. But I do let the experts do that, and then I read what they have to say. And the market seems to think those regionals are, if not going to go completely extinct in the next few weeks will at least come under significant pressure and people will be taking money out of them and putting money elsewhere. Is that an opportunity for SoFi? I think absolutely. So one thing about SoFi, remember what caused the bank run at, or what caused the collapse of SVB? What, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? The real gunshot there was withdrawals people were withdrawing money and withdrawing money and withdrawing money and withdrawing money and over time they added up and created a hole for the company that they had to fill sofi does not have that problem deposits are soaring every single quarter every single month probably every single week and every single day deposits are soaring at sofi so they don't have that problem SoFi, I think, is thriving in a banking environment in which others are struggling. And I do think that if you get regional bank failures, SVB is already gone, Signature is gone. Seems like First Republic could be the next to go. Maybe Bank of Hawaii. If you start getting some regional failures, that means these custody, they have millions of customers altogether, millions. Those customers are going to look for other places to park their money. Some are going to go to JP Morgan. Some are going to go to um, Bank of America. Some are going to go to Wells Fargo. And some will go to SoFi. The others are giants. So, you know, as a percentage of their current customer bases, they'll, they'll rise 2%, 3%, 4%. SoFi is not giant. So I think SoFi is in a position to, as a percent of its current customer base, grow significantly. 
as a result of what is going on right now. So yes, I do believe this is a major opportunity for SoFi. I know SoFi stock has been hit in the recent crisis because it is a financial institution and all financial institutions have been hit in the recent crisis. But SoFi is different than everybody else because it's growing much more quickly than everybody else and continues to grow very quickly, much more quickly than everybody else while everyone else is slowing or seeing deposits actually drop. That is hugely bullish. And it means this company is set to win when the others go under, question mark. Um, and that's, yes, I do think it's an opportunity for SoFi stock. I think it's a great time to buy SoFi stock. All right. Uh, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Any last words before we wrap today? Um, this is just, it's very important stuff, what's going on right now. Uh, I'm in a group chat with a lot of folks over the weekend. Um, I was texting a bunch of my, my startup buddies. A lot of them were locked out. A lot of them were very worried. Obviously today they're very happy, uh, very relieved. Happy payment may not be the right word, but relieved definitely. Um, but a, a common consensus among people that, that are not really plugged into the markets, but plugged into business and plugged into tech and plugged into all those things is that, um, how could this possibly be bullish for stocks? Like banks are collapsing and, you know, startups are trying to get money. Like how could this possibly be bullish for stocks? And you have to remember markets are driven by liquidity and liquidity is controlled by the Fed. When the Fed is on your side, you have tailwinds and those tailwinds tend to drive stocks higher. Everything that's happening right now is the necessary evil, necessary crisis that needed to happen to kind of, I don't know if wake the Fed up is the right term, but at least tell them it's, you know, it's time to head for the exits. It's, it's time to call it quits. Again, I, I don't think the Fed was ignorant of that. They were hiking knowing that eventually something was going to break with the idea that, or probably with the motivation that once something did break, they would stop. And that's exactly what they're doing. So I think the Fed, this is what they wanted all along. I mean, good for them, right? They've, I mean, let's let, what is the Fed trying to accomplish? They're trying to wipe out excessive speculation. Well, they've completely wiped out basically all the crypto banks. They've wiped out the bank of early stage technology. So they've wiped out that excess, check, check. And they've done so without driving the economy into a recession. Good job. They're trying to wipe out inflation. Well, inflation is down 300 basis points and projected to keep falling. And they've done that without driving the economy into a recession. Check. Good job. They've um, tried to restabilize economic demand and bring it in balance with uh, the supply of goods and services. Well, supply chains have completely rectified over the past 12 months and completely normalized back to pre-pandemic levels. Supply chain pressures are actually below where they were throughout a lot of 2017, 2018, 2019. And economic demand has waned. Consumer spending is dropping. Real consumer spending is dropping. Consumer confidence is, is lower than the normal. So you're seeing that check and they did that without driving the economy into recession good job congratulations um i mean they, they've done a lot really really well without driving the economy into recession and so i think they're at a point now where they can call it quits and say good good job team good job that doesn't mean the fight's over they can't now go and cut rates but i think they're at a point where they can say you know the offensive is over now let's hold the line and if inflation reaccelerates, we're going to have to go on the offensive again. And that's a whole different situation. But for now, I think we can stop the offensive and hold the line. And I think that's good enough to get stocks to have a pretty strong 
2023, strong April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, and December showing. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all.